The Streams of Winter, Livestream 3, Theon Greyjoy. Hello and welcome to The Streams of Winter. We are Radio Westeros and this is our third live stream. And after a look at Jon Snow and Melisandre, we now turn to Theon Greyjoy in The Winds of Winter. What will be Theon's role in the upcoming book? To help me answer, here's the other half of Radio Westeros, Lady Gwyn. Hello there. Hey, everybody. Uh, thank you for being here. So happy to be here today with you to talk about one of my favorite characters, Theon Greyjoy, and what's going to be happening with him in the Winds of Winter. And to help us with that discussion, we are very happy to introduce our friend Emmett Booth, a.k.a. Poor Quentin, from Not A Cast Podcast. Thank you and Welcome. Well, thank you so much for having me. I've been looking forward to it. Theon's one of my favorite characters as well. He's one of just the most the, one of the most complex and well-written POVs, and I'm just excited to get into it with you. Great. So are we. So, a uh, quick reminder about spoilers. Uh, we're going to talk about, obviously, the books and all the uh, Winds of Winter spoiler material is fair game, and so is... Um, uh, show discussion, although we have so much to talk about here. Uh, just looking through the document, we might have referred to the show once. Um, so it's not going to be a huge part of it, but it is fair game. So with that said, let's get started with Theon. And back over to you, Yoke Boy. Get us going. Okay, so we've prepared some major talking point questions, and we're going to kind of try and make a discussion out of it. And the first topic, Theon has been a captive, first of Ramsay, then of Stannis, for quite some time now, stretching over several books. So do we see Theon escaping such bonds and being a free man once more? What do you think, Lady Gwyn? Well, uh, you know, in my opinion, he's far too important of a character and he's got way too much... Um, invested or George has too much invested in his arc from a narrative and you know meta standpoint um, for him to spend too much more time as a fly on the wall which is basically what he was in A Dance with Dragons he was just you know he was our point of view although there was you know, there was a lot of development but he was our point of view into what was going on at Winterfell although we were just discussing before we started that in the very first Theon chapter he is literally a fly on the wall. But that said, uh, I think that might be George kind of winking at us uh, because I think long-term that sort of um, treatment is for characters like Aerys Okart and Nerio Hota. Uh, Theon is um, just too major. He was there on at the very beginning and I think he's going to be there at the end. So in Winds of Winter, my opinion, he's got to progress uh, and start becoming an active participant in his own story. So Theon must shed his kind of captive skin. I think that of Sansa as well. I hope these two characters can kind of uh, evolve into the next book. And Ebbett, do you agree that he will become a free man? And if so, why don't you tell us your thoughts on this topic? 
Absolutely. I agree with Lady Gwyn that Theon is gradually progressing to a point where he has to seize control of his own life for better or worse. For better in that he won't be at the whim of cruel puppet masters anymore, but for worse in that it means taking responsibility for what he's done and will do next, which he's kind of still eager not to do in a lot of ways. Stannis' presence in Theon's story was felt very transitional to me. Like, neither of them particularly care what happens to the other or resonate with each other. Like, Theon's, you know, clear poles in his life have been the Greyjoys, the Starks, Ramsay... Stannis's ultimate endpoint in terms of execution and sacrifice obviously is much more focused on Shireen. I think this is kind of a, a holding pattern for Theon for him to continue being flying on the wall for the moment, but ultimately it's a vessel for him to get out and away from kind of this 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 situation of pure torment and control and allow him to try to reconcile these these struggles within him. So I think yeah, ultimately freedom both inside and outside is what Theon is heading towards, and that's not going to be a purely easy thing for him because he doesn't really want to embrace freedom right now and he's going to have to and Emmett, how would you see how would you see it going down what could set theon free and you know internally externally have you got any ideas there well we have the theon you know released winds of winter chapter where stannis is preparing to potentially execute theon before the local weirwood at the crofters village but we also have the birds behaving very strangely and saying theon's name and saying the tree the tree the tree so they seem to be eager to get him there and this builds of course on theon seeing bran's face and bran saying theon from the winterfell heart tree so i think it's it seems likely that bran and bloodraven want to get theon in front of that tree in some way now it's entirely possible that they want him there to execute him and gain some power from king's blood or, or something else but Given Bran's general nature as a character and how he seems to be speaking to Theon from these trees and birds, I think what might happen is actually Bran tries to extend mercy to Theon to to, to intercede with Stannis to spare his life and to to give him some kind of some measure of forgiveness or some measure of freedom. I like this idea in part because I just love imagining Stannis Baratheon, his eye twitching, his sword raised, frozen in midair, as a small boy earnestly tells him from a tree that he has to choose mercy. Like, Stannis is already having bad enough talking to birds. <laughs> if he has to talk to a tree, that's just that's just going to be wonderfully <laughs> awkward. But I think that would be an interesting kind of new starting point for Theon, that he's he's given mercy that you could say maybe he doesn't deserve, but he's, be, you know, who, who gets what they deserve? He's being given it, and now he has to make something from it, and it's coming from the Starks. I think that would be kind of perfect for his character. Mm. Um, I, was, I was wondering, you know, just talking about this, uh, the birds and the tree and everything, the Prince of Winterfell and the Ghost in Winterfell chapters, what you're alluding to, uh, both feature that Winterfell heart tree apparently whispering Theon's name. But um, I was checking out the timeline before, and for people that don't, you know, dissect every small part of the timeline, you might not realize that those chapters um, actually occur after the end of Bran 3, which is Bran's last chapter in in A Dance with Dragons, where he starts first having that long series of visions through the, the heart tree. So um, this means, I think, that in Winds of Winter, we could still see Bran's side of those first, you know, interactions at Winterfell, and maybe even more, you know, leading up to the kind of things that you're talking about, especially considering the way those birds are saying uh, Theon's name in that sample chapter. Um, we know that Bran is out there flying around and skin-changing ravens, etc. So uh, I wondered if this could be part of the... Uh, we know that there was a chapter, a Bran chapter, that was moved from dance to winds, and I wonder if that could be part of it, and that might be one of the reasons uh, 
why that had to be moved because there's something too revelatory about Theon in that chapter. Yeah, I do wonder about that brand chapter. I mean, what else could it be? Maybe maybe Jojen meets, you know, this day he's going to die, but but you could be on the money there. And so when we're talking about freedom and forgiveness for Theon, what opportunities will this present for his internal and external world? Emmett, take it away. Well, forgiveness from a Stark would be a really powerful thing for Theon. I think it's you know, not so much quite because it's like a family he abandoned as it's framed in the show. And I get why the show framed it that way. It's very emotional. There's a lot of, a lot of pathos put in the books, especially when we see with that scene in Barbary Dustin. It's more that the Starks are this impossible standard that he can never live up to. And I think getting forgiveness from them, from the Starks saying, like, Theon, it's okay that you're flawed. It's okay you couldn't live up to us. I think that would be really powerful for him, especially from Bran, the true Prince of Winterfell, you know, the kind of ironic flip side of how Theon thought of himself. Bran was the person he dethroned, whose castle he stole. And for Bran to say, you know what, it's okay, I think that would be very powerful for him. The revelation that Bran lives that Theon didn't kill him, that would, you know, having the public community be aware of that would be very, I think, cathartic for Theon. But, of course, that doesn't change what Theon did to the actual dead boys and everyone else he heard along the way. And that's going to become only more apparent once Bran and Rickon's survival is out in the open. So he will have to take full advantage of whatever window of freedom he can claw open thanks to Bran's mercy. It's not necessarily just going to become, you know, follow the yellow brick road from, from then on. He has to rebuild his identity within his own mind and public view at the same time. And that's no easy task. It's not like he's just going to be sent to a quiet cell like Sandor, for example, where he can think about what he's done and meditate. He has to do it still in the eyes of a political community that may change their op- opinion on him somewhat, but is still not going to love him. Um, I agree, especially from the you know Stannis' perspective. It doesn't really matter who Theon killed. Um, Theon is a criminal and he's a turncloak and he's a valuable hostage too, which Stannis has been careful to make note of. Um, Brandon Rickon surviving might marginally change the way the uh, the Northmen feel about him, but, you know, he still has Winterfell to answer for. So um, remember that so far, Theon hasn't been inclined to point the finger at Ramsay. Uh, he actually confessed to killing Bran and Rickon in his Winds of Winter chapter um, to Stannis. Uh, he was trying to goad Stannis into killing him right then and there to save him from having to you know, face Ramsay because he's so terrified that Ramsay might be coming after him. Um, but, you know, I feel like, I feel like he's got a, uh, there's a few options for how he could um, kind of gain his freedom, uh, which you mentioned one. Uh, he, you know, there's a, there are ways I could imagine that he could escape. And there's one other um, option that I'm going to be cryptic because we're going to talk about it later. <laughs> And uh, earlier we mentioned this idea that Theon could be sacrificed to placate the Northerners and also to offer something to the Red God. So if the plot was kind of hinting at this, but, but then turned away, why would George turn the other way and give this broken character further story? Lady Gwyn, have you got any ideas there? Well, I just I think I already alluded to really what I have to say about this, which is that he's so I think he's so integral to the end game. Um, he is, in spite of his inner conflict, he's part of the Stark family. He, you know, he was there with them at the beginning. Um, we first see him on the second page of a Game of Thrones. I, I really think that um, George has committed to the character of Theon uh, and he's going to be there 
for the duration. So um, as to why, uh, if you guys have any ideas as to why, that's more about the mechanics of it. <laughs> yeah, I agree with you, with you that he... It feel, feels to me that he's just too important to discard just yet. His arc is not done, and I feel like we've been through a lot with him, and there's got to be some kind of payoff. So I hope there is anyway, after those Reek chapters. So moving on, let's talk about... Um, in The Last Kingdom, this Netflix show, we see a medieval story about a man with split heritage and he struggles to define himself here with Theon he's split between wanting to be a Stark and a Greyjoy he's not northern enough to be a Stark but too Stark to be Ironborn what is it that's so alluring about these kind of identity crisis stories and what what does that tell us about ourselves Emmett do you have any ideas you know, we, we like to think of ourselves as particular kinds of people. Rather than acknowledging the human heart, every single one of them, as a vessel for wildly contradictory or even oppositional forces. We are all father and mother and maiden and crone and smith and warrior and stranger. Those seven faces are actually one, as Catalan emphasizes a couple times. We're all, as George put it, a hero on Monday and a villain on Tuesday, depending on who you ask. This is not to say that it's all a wash and we should just embrace nihilism and, you know, complete moral relativism, but... We should think of ourselves not as agents of light or dark, but as battlegrounds between those forces. That's what we are. And evil, then, is less about irredeemable wickedness coming to the fore in the evil people. It's more about weakness against the same internal demons that plague the good people. The difference between good and bad people is like, you know, a couple degrees of strength against those same weaknesses and greed that inspires us all. Who you are on the given day, what the right thing is, these, these are constant battles with no victory. And I think you can see that really driving George's interest in Theon, that he's, he's really moved heaven and earth to like, keep this character working. He completely you know, retrofitted elements of Tyrion's plot to Theon in A Clash of Kings. He, he had the patience to let Theon vanish from the story for the entirety of A Storm of Swords and A Feast for Crows with the confidence that we would be with Theon when he brought him back under a completely different name. Like That is really confident, ambitious storytelling, and I think it's all about trying to get this idea across that that our understanding of Theon Greyjoy is so is so like incomplete and fragmented because that's kind of what people are. Mm-hmm. It's funny, I think how it, it always comes back to grayness, you know, and uh, that mix of that, you know, like you said, the mix of light and dark, and that really embodies the inner conflict. And as we all know, those those two things um, are the things that interest George the most. Great points about the light and darkness and i would say from a story point of view that you know these kinds of identity stories a character coming from two tribes but belonging to neither really presents a great storytelling opportunity such as double crossing spying divided divided loyalties and so on and these really cause and feed into enormous internal and external conflicts as we as it does with Theon, I think that's very entertaining for us. What do you think, Lady Gwyn? Yeah, I think uh, narrative tension is essential to good storytelling. It's the thing that keeps readers turning the page, that keeps us coming back. If there wasn't tension, conflict, dare I say drama, um, around a character like Theon Greyjoy, would we even care? Probably not. I mean, you know, Theon, we talk about Theon having a remarkable character arc, one of the best in the series, but 
I think there's there's not as much like progression you can necessarily point to in the same way you can with a character like Jamie. I think it's more just that Theon, the, the setup that you guys are talking about, this rich conflict is so potent that you don't even need Theon necessarily to change. You just keep putting him in different situations, and that conflict is where you get the drama from. And Theon isn't so much changing who he is as a person is just constantly going back and forth between these poles and there's no kind of no exit for him and that i think is really powerful you know in spite of the fact that if you just look at the narrative facts of theon Greyjoy, he seems like kind of a shallow douche and not necessarily someone you would find to be a remarkable literary character gonna gonna confess that i didn't care for theon and <laughs> in a game of thrones and even in you know in clash i, I wouldn't say i cared for him i would say that i I felt pity for him. Uh, obviously, it's not until he gets into these really deep, you know, deep conflicts and and that's the design. That that's George's design, isn't it? He's not. He hasn't misstepped early on with Theon. He's got you exactly where he wants you. You know, it, part part of the redemption story, which we'll we'll get back to. So I was wondering, Lady Gwyn, um, as we're talking about identity, to what extent? Is this identity theme and crisis really propelling his arc and story? And how is that going to continue in the next book after everything that's happened to him? Well, I mean, just following on from those comments I was just making, um, you know, about us caring about Theon um, and understanding his his crisis is, I think, is important um, for us to care. Um, I expect that his inner conflicts will continue and um, presumably we'll get to see more of him and Asha interacting, you know, because they're together now and, and that will fuel his, you know, the sort of the ironborn side of his conflict. He's got to be working through his PTSD. He's going to be facing all the things that he's done, uh, as we were just talking about. And maybe more importantly, he's going to be facing the people that he's done the things to. Uh, so yeah, this this is gonna just pull him forward, where he's gonna have to deal with things, you know, over and over as things pop up in his arc. And there's so many potentially fascinating dynamics surrounding Theon, as you were alluding to there, and you know, another reason to be so excited for this upcoming book. And uh, the, there's so many characters from Theon to Arya, from Jon Snow to Daenerys, who have very strong themes of identity. And George always comes back to this idea of the human heart in conflict with its, itself, the William Faulkner quote. And it's a relatable struggle that we can, we, you know, we, we can all take on board and relate to in our own ways. Patron... Elisa Faison points out that the chapter titles in A Dance with Dragons have meaning, such as The Ghost in Winterfell. So, with Theon's final dance chapter um, being called Theon once more, can we now expect his identity to begin to kind of settle down after being kind of reshaped by the first five books? What do you think, Emmett? It's a good question. I would say I would say yes and no. I mean, there's a tension with Theon in that his old self was, first of all, nothing really to be proud of. But second, like his old self already had a split identity long before Ramsay came along and made it much worse with the whole Reek thing. And that's something I think is really interesting about his character, especially going forward. The Theon we, we see at the end of A Dance with Dragons who gets the Theon chapter back, 
that's a new identity, different from the old, because the old Theon would not save Jane Poole, but this Theon is. It's kind of an inversion of a rose by any name would smell as sweet. The names matter here because they are conceptualizations of changing internal forces. What Theon means to Theon has changed, but you know he kind of needs that name back as a way to express that change, even as it's meaning something different. And you were saying about how you know George has us right where he wants us, and I think he's thinking so much about audience response when it comes to Theon's identity arc, and is like building our response into it, and is wanting us to change as much as him, that, you know, our, our distant relationship to him and Clash completely flips when we get to dance. You know, the first time you read that Reek chapter and it takes you a couple paragraphs to even figure out whose head it is you're inside, George is, is making you question your own stable foundations and how, how you know who you are. And I think, that's, I think that's why it keeps coming back to that. It's a great literary theme, but it's also just a great way of destabilizing your audience's perspective and forcing them to challenge themselves. Uh, what You know, what I find interesting, and this I already alluded to this whole progression of you know how we feel about theon starts with not really liking him at all and then eventually george gets us to a point where we are actively rooting for him to to win to recover his identity to be redeemed i mean you you wouldn't have thought that um before at any point before a dance with dragons i i don't think um you know we, we might have felt pity for him because he made bad choices very bad choices uh but it's really through this this process of you know what we see him go through in a dance with dragons um and i think getting back to the chapter titles that those those reflect that journey you know they obviously have they have dual meanings which you know i won't go off on a sidebar about that but you know i, I think as far as they pertain to theon um you know they're reflective of his journey and so yeah that when we get that one chapter that's theon that he's regained a critical part of himself there and that that's obvious but i do wonder because he obviously has not completed his journey if we'll get more chapters titled something besides theon as as we go forward and his journey kind of continues yeah that's uh really interesting to think about you know what what could the titles be or whether you know he's theon for good i hope he's theon for good i i'm wondering how theon will ever reconcile his identity crisis internally and forgive himself what what do you think emmett well the reveal that bran still lives might help trigger some self-reconciliation in that regard because Theon will have to move past the idea that he's being blamed for a crime he didn't commit. They were only Miller's boys, he tells himself, so everyone's wrong about what I did, so I don't really have to deal with what I actually did that only I know about. Once that is out in the open, he might be forced to deal with it on its own terms and allow for, for some kind of resolution. I don't know I don't know how direct that form takes. You know, sometimes the catharsis of, of dealing with your shame in public allows you to deal with what you've done. Sometimes you have to make direct redress. Other times, as we see with, like, you know, Sandor Clegane, you just need to put your head down and work for a while. You know, do good, do good works, even if they're not directly related to what you did, and hope that that adds some joy back to the universe for what you took away. Good karma. Yeah, exactly. Right? <laughs> exactly, yeah. exactly. Which, you know, that can be glib to a certain extent. It doesn't help the people you hurt, but it might be the only way of internally resolving yeah. what you did yeah i like that um i i think it's in the winds chapter he remembers seeing asha and 
pouring out his story to her and he just kind of it just all comes out in a like word salad he's just saying he's so eager to tell her about the miller's boys and the swords and the crypts and everything all of it kira and the dogs and it just goes on he can't seem to bring himself to tell anyone else this yet he's he's not quite willing to say ramsey bolton snow whatever he did it he's the bad guy he he's he's still too afraid of that or, or he's still too, you know, guilty about it. What his own role has been, I guess. Um, he doesn't feel worthy of being heard, I guess is what I'm saying. So instead he sits there and accepts things like Turncloak, Kinslayer, uh, which, you know, he kind of, even in Dance with Dragons, he kind of feebly protests that he's not a Kinslayer, but then, then he's just like, oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. Kinslayer. <laughs> So I think, um, you know, that part of him that really wants to be heard, um, I, I like this idea that he has to deal with the Miller's boys on their own terms and with what he did do at Winterfell that led to what Ramsay did at Winterfell, because obviously direct causality there um, before he can actually forgive himself. And um, what I wonder is if there's someone who's going to mediate um or attest to all of these things, you know, just kind of help him along because he seems so unable to vocalize on his own at this point. Um, so is there someone that might turn up that's turns out to be an ally in helping him to face the truth of it all? And, you know, that could be Bran, which is, you know, something we've been talking to, but there are some other interesting candidates who were also witnesses to what happened at Winterfell in Mira Reed, in... Asha, uh, Wex Pike, who is mute but has now learned to write. Um, so, you know, there's there's some other alternatives for people that could have still a surprising impact on his uh, on his arc. I think. Yes. Yeah, so, will Theon get any kind of external help? That is an interesting um, thing to think about. I'm so glad that we do have his POV, so we can be privy to all of his internal growth through wins that we think is is coming up. And I look forward to that a lot. But while Theon might, might be looking f- to forgive himself, other people might have other ideas about how he might come in useful to them. So in A Feast for Crows, we learn the story of Torgon Latecomer. I'm sure all of you remember this story which initially seemed like a possible blueprint for Theon's future. Do we agree or not that, that it could could be possibly some kind of blueprint? Lady Gwyn, what do you think? Uh, well, I think uh, when I first read that, I thought, oh, yeah, that's it. Uh, but the more I've studied Theon and actually Asha as well, I come to the conclusion that Torgon Latecomer is about what Asha wants. It's not necessarily about what Theon wants. In fact, I think um, as much as, you know, Theon has this identity crisis where he wanted to be Ironborn and he wanted to be a prince and all this stuff, I I think right now, after everything he's been through, it's kind of the last thing he wants. Um, So I think the purpose of Torgon Latecomer is... um, going to be more in Ash's arc 
um, maybe providing a path for her um, to possibly defeat Euron at some you know, at some point in the future. But not in a way that kind of takes over Theon's story. Is that what you're yeah. saying? Yeah, I think Theon has his own story. Yeah. Okay, I can agree with that. And so let's talk about Asha. How how far do we think her related ambitions will stretch? Emmett, what do you think? Well, I agree. I mean, this might end up being more of a technicality in Theon's story, this whole latecomer aspect, and might be more of a, a focus in Asha's story and just a, a way of getting accomplished what she needs to. Obviously, the timeline is going to be the same as, isn't going to be the same as the show because in the show, he, Theon took the leap from Winterfell and then the King's Mood happened and he was there for it. But I could see something similar to the show scene where Theon is put forward but ultimately kind of cedes actual rule to Asha. And maybe he's more... Maybe he's more framed religiously, like his uncle, Saint Theon, who suffered and was redeemed, and he can redeem the Iron Islands of their suffering, more than he is like the actual nuts and bolts day-to-day ruler, because Theon has no interest in that and probably wouldn't be good at it, and that seems like it might be more Asha or Roderick the Reader. Maybe it's similar to how Baylor the Blessed, another kind of religiously framed, suffering-for-your-sins kind of leader, but, you know, the actual guy running the kingdom was Viserys II, who yeah. knew what he was doing right. with the books, right. so that, that might be more kind of the division of power we see with the Ironborn. After all, there used to be, what was it, the, the Salt King and the Rock King yep. for the Iron Islands. They had the two kinds of, you know, two mm-hmm. kinds of power. Maybe we're looking at that. Sure, yeah. Um, I wonder if um, Theon's existence is is used as, you know, just the fact that he's alive. And the Torgon story as a precedent is just some use to invalidate that King's moot. And, you know, like, then there he is. And, and I, I was thinking about this, and I did realize that this actually is very similar to how it played out in the show, although, like you said, the timeline is different and everything. Um, but, you know, there's Theon just going, yeah, it's my sister. She's <laughs> it's not, she rules. not me. She rules. She's she's your queen. Um, so, you know, I, I definitely uh, think and hope that uh, something like that happens, although I don't want to go too deep on Asha's because we're going to be talking about her next week. <laughs> yeah, let's hold back because next week we're doing Asha and that's also why we've avoided largely talking about the Battle on the Ice or the Battle for Winterfell with Stannis because we know it's from Asha's POV. So next time. But anyway, back to Theon. He was badly disfigured by Ramsay, put, putting it mildly. <laughs> As a character... He was greatly punished following the disastrous takeover of Winterfell. So let's talk about penance and forgiveness from other people. At what point will he achieve forgiveness from those around him? What do you think, Emmett? Well, I mean, you have his his arc in a dance with dragons building up to the moment that he he leaps with with Jane Poole from the walls. And you have the setup for that being that Mance and his uh, his spear wives are saving, quote-unquote, Arya Stark. Who knows if Mance really thinks it's her or knows it's her, but that's what the pretense is. That's what <clears throat> the mission is about. It's not saving Jane Poole. It's saving the person she's pretending to be, Arya Stark. Just like Theon, just like Reek, you know, is Theon who's pretending to be Reek, who was always pretending to be this ironborn guy named Theon, all these identity shell games these characters are playing. And the fact that Theon, unlike Mance, saved Jane despite knowing she's not Arya because he knows she's not Arya and wants to save the person underneath, that seems crucial to me. That the idea of how Stark was projected onto her and she suffers for it. And Theon relates to that, and he gets her out of there, away from the man who abused them both. 
It's as if he's acknowledging the worth of humanity under identity, under the shadow on the wall, under the power plays of the Game of Thrones in which the innocent suffer. And that applies to him as well, that he has suffered under his, the cloak of his identity, but also to the boys he killed, that he not only killed these Miller boys, Miller's boys, but no one can mourn for them properly because no one knows that's who he killed. And no one can properly relate to Jane Poole because everyone's pretending she's Arya Stark. And I think Theon achieving some kind of forgiveness is about tapping through that and getting through that, that redemption and that heroic act. It's caught up with his need to, to reckon with mortality and with who he's been. And that's why he immediately ends up a prisoner of Stannis who tells him, no, you didn't fly, you fell, like Bran, like every other broken man. It was actually Crow Food Umber who saved the Jane Poole because he picked you two up. Otherwise, the phrase would have grabbed you immediately. And that, that kind of frames Theon's act as not being about saving the day on his own, but about the decision to do it. And I, I think maybe those, the accumulated weight of those decisions and people seeing them, maybe that's what leads to forgiveness. Yeah, yeah. I, I definitely think that... Um... You know, he showed great courage there and um, more so than, you know, the more you dig into it and try and kind of peel the layers back, the the courage of being able to do that uh, um, is something tremendous. And I think that uh, he really did in that moment when he was saving Jane um, kind of embody that, you know, Ned's maxim about being courageous when you're afraid because he is probably the most afraid a human being can be whenever Ramsey's in the house, right? So um, I think going forward, he's going to be doing, proving himself in some equally courageous way, you know, and, and when he's at his most terrified, which will be saying an awful lot, um, he'll do something that will benefit House Stark or Winterfell or the North or, yeah. Yeah, yeah the greater good. And uh, Lady Gwyn, do you think that Theon has always wanted to be a hero, and in that that's his course that he set on? Do you think deep down that that was part of what was driving him? Theon always wanted to be a hero. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you just roll it back to the you know in the Wolf's Wood when he shot the uh, when he shot the wildlings who were holding Bran and. You know, Rob was so pissed off at him, but really that and so many other things that Theon has done in his arc have come from his deep desire to be a hero. Um, he, he even just going to the Iron Islands to treat with his father, you know, he naively thought his father was going to was going to listen to him and, and come on board and he was going to be a big hero uh, for, for Rob and Rob's cause. I mean, you know, until... He realized that that was a dead end for him um, and he had to choose another path to being a hero. Um, so, yeah, I think definitely that that's going to end up being a huge part of, of where he's going. I really hope this is ultimately a hero story for sure. It'd be so interesting. But on his way to potentially being a, a hero, he has suffered a lot. So there's there's much suffering in these books, but Theon is you know one of the characters that's gone through the most. Why does George introduce suffering and torture into arcs like Jamie and Theon's? You know, in terms of character development, what what can it kind of offer rather than being just gratuitous violence? Have you got any thoughts on that, Emmett? 
It's an interesting question with Theon specifically, because while we do see gratuitous violence at the end of his class arc and throughout his dance arc, the most, you know, awful and soul-shattering violence that happens to Theon happens completely off-page, and our imagination has to fill it in, which in a way kind of implicates us, not morally, but it forces us to be the one to think of what might have happened to Theon and forces us to, to be in this kind of intimate place with him. So I think George is in part doing that, but I think... I think also the element of torture is there to represent the impossibility of achieving justice in an unjust world in which escalation of violence is the only tool powerful people seem to take seriously. Jamie and Theon have committed real crimes that cry out for some kind of redress, but there is no system in their world that can deal with them in such a way that achieves justice. Like, the closest thing we see to, like, a just court is the Brotherhood's court, and that still turns really unjust when it comes to the specific case of Sandor Clegane. Everything just gets worse in these situations. And what I think that means in terms of character development is that only Jamie and Theon and Sandor can work out their own redemption. Suffering can't do it, and society can't do it. It has to be their desire for it, because that's, that's the only thing that really is going to mean anything for them. Do you, think it, do you think it kind of primes us to excuse them of past deeds or something like that? Do you think it kind of allows us to forgive them, the reader to forgive them because of what they've undergone? I think it, for me personally, convinces me that I have to trust Theon Greyjoy's idea of what a better Theon Greyjoy would be, because I can't trust Ramsay's idea of what a better Theon Greyjoy would be, or Stannis's, or really even the people I like in the North, because they're, you know, their better version of Theon is someone who's dead. So as, as, as flawed and messed up as the mind of Theon Greyjoy is, it's still the only place a better version of Theon is going to come from, and that's way harder if you torture him. Like, even putting aside just the sheer awfulness of torture in itself, it makes it way harder for you to improve yourself because you're, you're psychologically just so frayed and torn and broken. It's going to be so much harder for Theon even if he wants to do that. And I think, that's, I think that's part of what George is getting at, not mitigating his past crimes, but saying this has not helped make him a better person. It's made him, a, you know, it's made it much harder and it's enabled terrible people, people even worse than him. Excellent. And talking of characters that have suffered a fair amount, when I was re-reading the uh, first Reek chapter, I was re reminded very much of Gollum. So, Lady Gwyn, can you tell us, could Reek be the George R. R. Martin answer to Gollum? Yeah. Um, first, I want to say that I have just an observation about Reek, because I find it very fascinating that the original Reek... Um, was a mentor to Ramsay and must have had some kind of power over him, you know, in the way that mentors do. If we, if we talk about heroes' journeys, you know, it, you have a mentor and a student and um, as as disgusting as their relationship probably was, um, he was, you know, the original Reek was above Ramsay because he's teaching him how to do these things. Um, but then we learned that Ramsay traded clothes with him at this key moment, which led to Reek's death. Uh, Ramsay literally took on, you know, his mentor's identity in order to save his skin. Um, so that's another, you know, it's a, another sort of perversion of a hero's journey because he's, it's the, the student surpassing the master. Um, but the next time we see Reek, Ramsay has turned him into a pet, um, which just says so much about the power dynamics that someone like Ramsay serves. Now that's all about Ramsay. So as far as Reek and Reek 
Theon Reek being Gollum. Uh, I think in the most Martinian of ways, he's similar to Gollum uh, in that, you know, he's a pathetic creature who has been changed by the experiences he's undergone. Uh, and he likely has a role to play in the denouement. So, yeah, they definitely have, you know, similar beats in their arcs. But he's a version of Gollum that's going to have a lot more agency than poor Smeagol ever did. And he's not going to be Reek by the time he gets to that point. Um, unlike Gollum, Smeagol, um, he's going to be, he's going to get to that point and be Theon, be hopefully what everything we're saying that he will have found redemption uh, before he gets to that. Yeah. So Theon was just going through a Gollum phase. That's it. Just he's going to grow out of it. <laughs> just, just a teenage phase. Okay. So patron Christine wonders about Theon and the theme of redemption. So let's go there. There are several characters with redemptive beats in their arcs, such as Jamie and Sandor. But when everyone's story is finally done, will Theon Greyjoy's journey be the true redemptive arc in the series? So, what what do you make of that, Emmett? It's it's always the the you know the interplay between your individual arc and how you feel about yourself, and then your place in the big picture, and what the the relationship between those two things is. I mean, there was a reckoning in the cases of Jaime and Sandor with that big picture in terms of how society has remade them in its own violent image, even, even as they've resisted its hypocrisies as best they can. They carry with them the knowledge that all of this is bullshit. That's what they keep saying over and over. Society is pretense laid over barbarism. And at least barbarism has honesty of purpose. And both of them are then forced to face the fact that they can still choose to do good in this fallen world. I think Theon has just reached that point. He, he's yet to connect the dots between his own suffering, his own crimes, and the potential for a better world. I think we might see him build up that perspective over the winds of winter. Like, what, what is the kind of society that, you know, led me down the path I led, that led Ramsey down the path he led? Because it's like, the comparison to Gollum is interesting because there's no ring, right? There's no, like, locus of easily identifiable thing you can point to. That's what made Gollum the way he was. That's the symbol of power. That isn't really there for Theon. It's this evanescent sense of who I am and who I'm supposed to be. So maybe maybe the key for Theon's next step is he has to identify something specific. He has to keep it away from free-floating and says, I have to change the world somehow. I have to make the Iron Islands better. I have to, you know, replace my, my nightmarish uncle. I have, to, I have to burn the Ring of Power. I have to find something concrete I can do. Excellent. When I think of, um, like, the classic redemption arc, I always think of Anakin Skywalker, mm-hmm. Darth Vader. And I, I see, it, you know, some commonalities. They start off as kind of troubled kids and they they get offered a decent path in life really but you know the darker side gets them and you know they go through different kind of dark phases but ultimately they could do one last you know shot of redemption at the end and I wouldn't be surprised if that's how Theon is portrayed so that'd be my kind of pop culture comparison. Lady Gwyn what do you think about redemption arcs? Um, you know, I think there's various types of redemption, aren't there? I mean, last week we talked about uh, Melisandre and redemption through the possibility of redemption through self-sacrifice. Uh, you know, there's redemption through action, through, you know, an active arc, a series of things that build. Uh, you know, I could see 
actually both coming into play with Theon. Uh, the show gave us um, a Theon Greyjoy who died defending Bran from the Night's King, but in a way that to me felt slightly hollow. I mean, it, did it matter in the end that he died? I, I mean, yeah, maybe to him, I mean, he he chose to be there and he chose to make that stand. I mean, and those were those were great choices, um, but there was no sort of tangible effect. And I, I came away from that craving more. So I, I think that George's ending will not feel pointless, if, if you will, I, which, you know, uh, I think that Theon's going to really do something that matters in order to get to that final point of his arc, which, um, let's face it, I do anticipate that his redemption arc is leading towards redemption death <laughs> um which is what we you know it uh, apparently what we saw in the show but i don't think it will have that hollow kind of feel to it okay so maybe something with a bit more meaning you're hoping for so why would while we're talking about kind of great redemptive acts that could happen this is really even beyond the scope of winds of winter now but anyway let, let's go there so some fans wonder, you know, us included, whether Theon, this renowned archer in the early story, has still got it, what it takes to loose a fateful dragon tip, dragonglass-tipped arrow one last time. And we, we, we made a poll about it. Take it away, Lady Gwyn. That's right. Our poll was, does Theon have one last heroic arrow shot in him? You know, he's... He's been noted through his arc to be a fantastic archer. And um, we had 506 people vote. And essentially, uh, it was came down to a margin of 4 to 1. 79.6 said, yes, he does. And 20.4 said, no. Um, the yes uh, people, I want to just... Add, there was one comment to I am sorry I didn't write down who it came from um, who said I think this is actually why Theon was written that way and uh, I couldn't agree more. You, you mean as, a, as an archer? As an archer right. yes I think that, that that part is there in his arc for a reason. So. That makes sense to me especially doesn't, doesn't Glendon Ball have only uh, seven fingernails right? Oh, on Mystery Night yeah. when he makes his shot yeah. so I definitely see that connection I, you know there's always the question of how practical a given thing is, but obviously it's a fictional universe if George wants to write an event because he feels it resonates with the character with a larger story. He can fudge the details to make it make sense. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that, that, you know, that definitely links up. Theon's skill with a bow has been consistent, as you said, Lady Gwyn, from, the, from early on in the Wolfswood in book one, even before he was a POV. Mm-hmm. And with, the, you know, with his, his, his uncle hanging around, with the others on the march, there's plenty of rape targets, plenty of important people to shoot. Exactly. Yes, exactly. Uh... Yeah, and you know we also had um, uh, something I would like to point out that uh, we we talked about this in our Theon episode that the it's been noted that the Night's Watch is critically short of archers and and the importance of archers on top of the wall um, defensively when you know when you have uh, enemies attacking. Uh, from there's really only one way to defend yourself from 700 feet in the air, and that's with uh, good 
a good contingent of bowmen. Um, so, Yoke Boy, that brings us to our next uh, point of discussion, doesn't it? Yeah, good segue. So, pa- patron Judson Bates wonders about Theon and the Night's Watch. So, when Theon was inside Winterfell as an invader, Maester Lewin advised him to join the Night's Watch because, guess what? It's a place of forgiving previous sins and tabula rasa, etc. Do do we think we could see Theon headed that way during the Winds of Winter as a kind of way of regaining honour and also gaining forgiveness? What do you think, Lady Gwyn? Um, I wrote in the document two words, and they are, hell yes. <laughs> That's uh, affirmative. <laughs> <Is it? laughs> well, yeah, I, 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 I think I would like that. I'm, I, I'm not sure that it's going to happen to kind of lean on the show a bit. The, the portrayal in the show was almost like the people standing against the others at Winterfell in in this kind of last stand situation had become the Night's Watch. You know, you mm. didn't have to say your vows. If you're there and you're going to give your life and you're going to stand up against the, these demons, then, you know, you're one of the gangs. So mm. I, I would say that I could see him becoming like Agreed. the Night's Watch in spirit, but not really saying the, the, the vows. I agree mm. with you there. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, I was just going to say the show kind of gave up on the Night's Watch, though, really. True. So, I mean, we have, uh, I pointed out a couple of streams ago that how much, you know, relatively speaking, you know, narrative, we have much, so much more than what the show gave us because they got to through five books and then squashed all the rest into, you know, like what two seasons, which were short. And anyways, I just think there's so much more space to tell that story that it's it's possible the Night's Watch will remain relevant. So I definitely think that's especially with the multiple castles and so many secondary characters. But I like the idea that, yeah, Theon, you know, I mean, the Night's Watch is, you know, kind of where you go to, to wash away your sins, but no one really forgets who you are or where you came from, and they definitely make sure you know it. You know, they keep calling him Lord Snow for a reason. I don't think anyone really <laughs> forget when Theon did, so maybe he has to stay at Winterfell where the stuff happened, you know, and actually, mm. actually face it and actually confront it and not just go into exile. And, yeah, maybe... Yeah, having the stand against the others there would then fit that. He can still do the the larger sacrificial purpose of the Night's Watch, but in a place that means something to him. I think that could be really good. Yeah, I like it. I like that, you know, in the, the Stark home, back where he kind of misstepped, let's say. Misstepped. Earning some kind of final <laughs> forgiveness <laughs> and a last hurrah the young Greyjoy. Well, yeah, sure. I mean, it's both paradise and hell for him. That's the great thing about Winterfell for Theon. It's the only place he's ever known happiness, and also, like, yeah. the Garden of Eden he utterly burned down. So it's, you know, he has to resolve that somehow. It's his home, isn't it, mm-hmm. really? It's his home. Okay, so really enjoyed the discussion so far. This is the last talking point. After the emotional and physical torment that Theon's undergone... I'd like to know, what's it like to be Theon Greyjoy, you know, it, heading into the Winds of Winter and beyond? What's it like to be on Theon's head after he's just escaped Winterfell and joined up with Stannis? Lady Gwyn, what do you think? Um, Gosh, it's dark. He has PTSD. Um, 
you know, he's... I can't even imagine what it's like to be the Uncrage. I actually <laughs> honestly tried, and I just just kept coming up with, like, oh! But what I thought of when, when, when I was trying to think about this is... Um, a quote from George about the winds of winter, where he said that it's going to get worse before it gets better for a lot of characters. And um, I mean, in general, he's talking about the narrative, but he said specifically a lot of his characters are going to experience very dark places. And, and actually it's not going to be the happy kind of resolution. I don't think we're going to see those things in the winds of winter um, that we want to see. So um, while some characters might be improving, um, a lot of them are going to kind of stay in darkness or maybe get worse. And I thought, how the heck could things get worse for Theon? <laughs> <laughs> maybe we could speculate on how things could actually get well, worse. Well, get, getting dragged into the light might hurt too. Like thinking about Jamie, you know, he went through the pain mm -hmm. of losing his hand, but then he had to relive what happened with Eris, which you get the sense in that bathhouse he has not really thought in detail about this for a very long time yeah and, but he right. has to in order to to get better in order to you know reclaim his identity in order to have something worth living for maybe Theon uh, has to go through a version of that you know has to relive what he's done in a way he hasn't been able to do uh, but you know I also think about how in that first week chapter just like coming up into the world again and like fresh air and moon like that just totally dazzled him and threw him off and there's that part in uh, in the forsaken aaron dampere has released winds of winter chapter when he's after like spending i think like weeks chained down in the, the hold of the silence he's brought up and just the smell of the salt air makes him cry and i wonder if we're going to see like just little details like that in theon's chapters like just little physical things like just a, the world he was denied by ramsay the ordinary banal world he used to take for granted like he might look at like a candle with like just dumbstruck awe and think how beautiful it is like i think that might be that might be kind of the the grace notes in his chapters like obviously the big picture stuff might still get get worse before it gets better but i think not just just again when he's not a prisoner anymore i think that's going to feel so new and revelatory to him just to pick up on, on something you said earlier emmett um once theon finally deals with what he's been through with ramsay He's then back to where he began with this identity split, which was never resolved, which needs resolved. So he's going to he's going to have to get back to the, the, the thing which drove him in the first place, this huge problem in his mind. Yeah, exactly. He's going to have to get back to that. And, and with a sense of the, you know, the stakes of what happened last time he tried to resolve this. And I think. Again, I think it's this like dialectical process where a new Theon is produced, like not not an identity he's going to get back to, but this this completely new person who's bearing this name, and I think that it's it's going to be a lot of a lot of a lot of rebirth imagery. I imagine is what we're going to be seeing for Theon in the Winds of Winter. Well, at the same time, a lot of sense of how far he has to go because yeah, he just ends up another prisoner of Stannis who doesn't like him any more than Ramsay did. So I think it's this, this tension of Theon trying to move forward and, and dealing with what's been done. I think that's going to that's going to be the feeling. And then, like Lady Gwen said, that's going to feel feel really dark, but also like, you know, Theon's dance chapters, they felt like being in like in a tiny little box, like you're just being squeezed into his head. And I think we're going to see some more, uh, the imagery of freedom for better, again, for better or worse, as terrifying as it can be, I think is going to be the, the big note of Theon's chapters. Okay. And if Theon really needs to kind of shed this Ramsey phase 
as much as, po- as is possible, given what was done to him. Lady Gwyn, what needs to happen so he can kind of move move on from from all that trauma related to Ramsay? What, what's the plot point that's going to kind of heal him the most? Well, I, I mean, I think there's only one thing that's going to really allow Theon to release that fear that's hanging over him right now through through the PTSD that he is going to end up back in the Valley of Shadow again and that is going to be Ramsay's death um, so you know that's really the, the one thing that he really needs to move beyond and I don't think it's going to come from him um, we have our theory how that will happen uh, we'll be talking about it in a few weeks with a different character but <laughs> but I definitely think that'll be something that finally allows him to go oh okay I might be safe now and maybe I can focus on anything you know, else maybe that's the, sh- the shining do. light of hope in this upcoming book <laughs> Ramsey's death exactly that's about as good <laughs> that's about as good as it's gonna get for us can't get any better and yeah that he's safe from Ramsey and also he can go oh Ramsey's not a divine force sent to punish me for my sins. He's a person, just like me. Right. And I think that yes. could really help him. He's mm-hmm. mortal. Yeah, yeah, exactly. In the end, he was just a man yep. whose dogs mm-hmm. ate him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> oh, okay, so uh, with that, the death of Ramsey, let's uh, bring, bring things to a close. Emmett, it's been great having you on. You've been a great guest. Thank you very much. I loved your insight today. Why don't you spend a minute telling us about your podcast and, and your blog and any, any other creative things that you're up to? Well, thank you so much. It was an utter, utter joy to be with you, both of you folks, as always. So can't wait to be with you again. Uh, you can find me at, at Poor Quentin on Twitter. Uh, the podcast I do is Not A Cast with uh, Brendan B. Fish, a.k.a. Jeff Hartline, who I tolerate and love, as do we all. Uh, <laughs> we absolute all pillar of the fandom, of course. <laughs> so we've been going through the series chapter by chapter. We're a little over halfway through Clash of Kings now. So you can find us at uh, Not A Cast, A-S-O-I-A-F, on Twitter. Uh, the actual other episodes are at Not A Cast, A-S-O-I-A-F, uh, .podbean.com. We have a Patreon where people get early episodes and bonus episodes and access to our Slack. That's at patreon.com slash Not A Cast, A-S-O-I-A-F. And I'm also at uh, poorquentin.com these days. I have, I've only done one essay on there so far, but more will come when I when I feel the need to do so. So that's where you can find me, folks. Okay, great. Well, uh, thank you for being here. Uh, thank all you folks who are watching uh, live right now for being here. Um, thank you and hello uh, from the past to everyone who will watch this or listen to this uh, pre-recorded because uh, it will be out as a podcast uh, within the next couple of days and obviously available to consume on YouTube for all time. So thanks to anyone who watches this in the future. Uh, next week, we will be back uh, with another live stream. Same time, same place. We're going to be talking about Asha Greyjoy and our guest next week is going to be Aziz from History of Westeros. So we're very excited to uh, come back and kind of continue this, some of the same themes that we might have talked about today and obviously more um, getting into the uh, battle on the ice. So Excellent. Yeah, we'll be back next week and every Saturday for the foreseeable future talking the winds of winter, POVs, 
as we continue to weather the current storm. Don't forget to hit the like and subscribe button and catch Lady Gwyn on History of Westeros channel tomorrow at 3 for the Valari Redis, a Storm of Swords wrap-up. And I want everyone to stay safe because we love you all in the fandom and see you next time. Yeah, bye for now. <laughs>